Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to your active hybrid conference supported by Fujifilm. Now, today we're going to be talking about technological advances in healthcare, the key to fighting health inequalities. Now, first things first, as always, everyone get involved on Slido. Send in your questions or your comments, and I'll pick some of those out for later on in the program. Okay, so the key to fighting health inequalities. Well, first of all, that's a big statement of intent for this discussion today. So I hope all of our panelists here are up to the task. Um, now, the pandemic started a chain of events that has put many healthcare systems in the EU and also globally on, you could say, near or next to life support. The Ukraine war and the cost of living crisis has, of course, exasperated and limited the capability of national governments to really inject the level of innovation and capital that is needed, especially in healthcare systems, to bring them up to scratch and fit for purpose. So where do you start? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at today. But we're going to be going along the lines of four specific areas. We're going to be tackling the health inequalities the pandemic threw up. We're going to be looking at diagnostics, funding, and medical deserts. But before we get to all of that, I'm going to hand over to Andy Ross from Fujifilm. Some opening remarks. <laughs> oh, no one's clapping. No, come on. <laughs> I'll, I'll clap myself. Good, good afternoon. Um, at Fujifilm Healthcare Europe, we acknowledge it's a critical time for member states, healthcare systems and policy makers, with the scale and complexity of challenges growing constantly. Yet, too often across Europe we see delays in diagnosis and unequal access to healthcare that deepens health inequalities. Despite advances in diagnostics, medicines and vaccines playing a pivotal role in tackling the pandemic, COVID interacted with and exacerbated existing health inequalities making the need to reduce them even more apparent. Now, while you may think of Fujifilm as the organization that make little green boxes of photo film, in fact, we've focused on delivering healthcare solutions since our foundation. Almost 90 years ago, we took on the challenge of manuf manufacturing X-ray film as TB became a large scale social problem in Japan. And today, healthcare is now the largest segment of the Fujifilm business. Across the group, we're dedicated in equal measure to manufacturing the medicines and vaccines of tomorrow, while also bringing forward medical technologies that deliver faster, more accurate diagnosis for patients. For instance, our cutting edge point of care solutions provide the opportunity to con conduct imaging and diagnos diagnosis in emergency settings, patients' homes, or rural GP surgeries. So those living in medical deserts no longer miss out or costly admission to hospital can be avoided. Through such innovation, Fujifilm is invested in playing its part in helping Europe put an end to health inequalities and delivering a healthier future for all. Thank you to Euractive for organising this event, and thank you to Mariam and our panellists for your contributions to today's discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Okay, so with that, let's now introduce the panellists. We have Christian Kreiser, the Policy Officer, Health Innovations and Ecosystems at DG RTD, which is DG for Research and Innovation from the European Commission. Welcome to you. We have Tomislav uh, Sokol, um, who, of course, is an MEP from the European Parliament. He's a member of COVI Committee as well. Welcome, welcome to you. Who He joins us remotely. Um, next, also joining remotely, we have my friend, <laughs> someone who I've met on a previous panel, um, Karine Hinlopen. She's the health advocate and project lead of the AHEAD consortium, REMOS, um, and we'll be hearing a lot from her about medical deserts. Um, we have Raymond Germain, if I pronounce that correctly? 
Yeah, sorry. Head of Policy for Health Equity, Public Health Alliance. Um, and last but not least, we have a fellow Scott on the panel, um, Dr. Alistair Fraser. He's the co-chair of the advisory board, Faculty of Remote Rural and Humanitarian Healthcare at the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. Welcome to you all. Okay, so let me hand the baton over to you guys to introduce yourselves. Christine, over to you first. Thank you very much. And thank you for having us here today at this very important debate. Um, you introduced me already. My name is Christine Krieser. I work as a policy officer um, at the European Commission, uh, the DG for Research and Innovation. Um, in the unit for um, health ecosystems and innovations, we do a lot of related work. My work is mostly related to um, providing policy support to uh, the Innovative Health Initiative, previously the um, Innovative Medicines Initiative, um, which is a uh, large public-private partnership um, in the area of pre-competitive health research uh, that is also very cross-sectoral. Um, and I also deal with other policy issues um, in the regulatory area and health technology assessment, um, for example. Perfect. Okay, thank you. Uh, MEP Circle, over to you next. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm Tomis Sokol, member of European Parliament from Croatia, uh, member of the ENVI Committee, so Public Health and Environmental Protection Committee of the European Parliament, member of the of the COVID Committee, Special Committee on uh, COVID on COVID-19, and also a coordinator of the European People's Party, the new subcommittee on health. Uh, and uh, that, and uh, also, apart from that, I would like to emphasize that I'm also the, one of the two co-rapporteurs on the European Health Data Space Regulation, which is currently one of the most important health files that we are dealing with in the European Parliament. And I was also the, the rapporteur on, an, on a report in, Europe, in the Committee on Regional Development on how to use European funding to tackle he uh, healthcare inequalities. So this is definitely a topic that I think I'm pretty familiar with. Thank you so much. Karina, over to you. Hi, thank you. Yes, good afternoon all. Glad to be here. Uh, my name is Corinne. I'm a health advocate at Wemos in Amsterdam. We are a civil society organization advocating the right uh, to health for all. And Wemos is the lead partner in the AHEAD project, Action for Health and Equity Addressing Medical Deserts. And it has been active now for two plus years in Italy, Moldova, Romania, the Netherlands and Serbia. And it was funded by DG Sante. And it is with that head hat on my head today that I'm participating in this uh, panel. Many thanks again for the invitation. There are two distinct uh, features of the AHEAD project that are relevant for this discussion. First, we have developed a medical deserts diagnostic tool, as we have called it, uh, a tool that visualizes data on health worker and health services uh, densities in interactive maps. And this is a great tool for policymakers to identify and monitor medical deserts. And the next step would be actually to develop a sort of a plug and play application where people can create their own MDDT maps uh, uh, with their own data. And second, very important, we have applied a participatory policymaking uh, approach to mitigating uh, the situation in medical desert regions or populations in the five countries. So in a series of workshops organized in the uh, specific case study areas in these countries and engaging multiple stakeholders, including residents and health and care workers, we have formulated policy options, policy solutions that can help solve or mitigate these uh, challenges uh, related to uh, uh, health access. 
Um, and yes, some of these policy solutions uh, include the use of uh, technology, digital or otherwise. And I'll be happy to elaborate a little bit more on that during the discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm over to Raymond next. Yes, thank you, uh, Marion, for the introduction. And thank you, Erective, for the invitation um, to speak here today. So I work for IFA, European Public Health Alliance, and we are an NGO alliance advocating for better health in Europe. So we have members um, from the public health civil society, including health professionals and patient and disease groups. So I was asked to make an opening statement. And actually, the title of today's session is a question. And I wanted to answer that question in my opening sta statement and also to spice up uh, the debate a little bit. Because the question, I'm going to quickly check. Um, technolog technological advances in healthcare, the key to fighting health inequalities. And perhaps you see it coming because I think the answer is actually no. I don't think that healthcare technologies are the key to fighting health inequalities. And actually, and I mean, I really mean no offense, but when I see such titles and when I see uh, the usage of the word health inequalities, I don't know if itchy is the right word, but I'm, at least I'm getting triggered by it um, because it seems to me that health inequalities have become quite the buzzword. And I also have the impression, and now I'm speaking really on behalf of my, myself, that the words are often used without really understanding what these health inequalities actually mean or health inequities would actually be a better term um, to recognize uh, and to be more inclusive and to recognize that different groups of people have different needs. Um, because if you know where these health inequalities or inequities come from, you know that uh, they are influenced or health is influenced and the opportunities to be in good health, uh, opportunities to access healthcare and, and uh, exposure to risk factors that detrimentally uh, impact your health, are defined by the so-called determinants of health. So these are social, these are economic, these are environmental, commercial, or even digital determinants um, of health. And actually the majority of these factors, and the WHO estimates that to be up to almost 90%, lie outside of the, of the health uh, uh, domain. And the point that I want to make today, my main point is coming now, for health technology to truly tackle health inequalities, First, they need to be designed with that very objective in mind, so really to address health inequalities. Linked to that, number two, is they really need to consider those uh, underlying determinants of health. And thirdly, they need to be developed with the people, with the patients, you know, with the intended users of, of such technology. Just, and I'm going to finish here. I do think that there is a lot of potential, really, I think there's huge potential of technology in improving diagnosis, treatment, making health systems more efficient, and improving patient uh, experience, patient safety, um, and indeed uh, reduce health inequalities. But my question is, for whom? Um, and we believe that health, uh, that health technology should be equitable, uh, affordable, and uh, universally accessible. Thank you. Thank you. That was an interesting point, because you know, if we look back to the pandemic, minorities are the ones that allegedly suffered more. And there was a kind of, you know, lazy equivalent saying that it's because they were on the front line. So we will be discussing a lot more of that a bit later. <laughs> okay, Alistair, over to you. Yeah, I think you just stole my thunder a little bit. <laughs> Not to worry. I'm Alistair Fraser. I'm a Scottish physician. Um, I think I'm here because I've worked all across the planet. I've worked everywhere from the Antarctic to Nigeria to Malaysia to Houston to the UK, offshore North Sea. And I have either personally delivered healthcare or I've 
health-led teams that deliver healthcare in areas with health inequalities, because health inequalities are always there, particularly areas with health inequities, and I'll add another word, which is disparities. And I think we need to be very clear on what we're dealing with. So, for example, in the US just now, there was an article, uh, black and brown mothers are three times more likely to die in childbirth or related to childbirth than white mothers, even with access to the same hospitals and to the same technology. That's not an inequality. That's at least a disparity, which means there's a gap that could be fixed. But I think it's an inequity and it should be associated with the moral outrage that goes with inequity. And until we define the why we're chasing these things, what are the problems we're chasing, what are the opportunities, and do the people who have these problems or opportunities believe that they have them too? I don't think we make really good progress. So, I presently uh, co-chair a faculty at the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. Uh, that's a 500-year-old charitable institution. The faculty looks at remote, rural, and humanitarian healthcare. It's for doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, anyone with an interest in healthcare. And it's there because there is a huge gap in training, standards, and delivery of healthcare in the areas that you could call health deserts or simply those with just reduced access to care. We think there's a, a massive gap there. We also think there's not just technology, but also in the culture that sits with it. And also very, very clearly with, I think you could say the kudos or the status of people who work in those areas. If you're in the medical profession and you're a professor in a teaching center, that is the top of the tree. If you're a general practitioner working somewhere in the very, very, very far remote areas, you really don't have the same level of respect and it's ridiculous. So we're looking to create community standards and actually create this new profession who has an incredibly broad depth of, a broad spread of knowledge, relatively shallow, and using technology to support that to deliver better outcomes for people. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, well, I'm going to come to both of you first, um, considering that you raised some very important points there, but perhaps, Raymond, coming to you then, you said technology isn't necessarily the solution. There's lots of inequity. Um, I mean, obviously, we don't want to be in a position where you've got a two-tier, you know, access to health, where, you know, those that can go private can get good health care, and then everyone else is just left to get whatever that they can when they can. So what would you say are the top, if tech is not the solution, mm -hmm. what would you say is the top three areas to tackle if we're gonna look at health inequalities? Hmm. Um, I mean, if your objective is truly to tackle, again, let's call them inequities or disparities, I think you need to, you need to look at the underlying factors. I mean, you can look at the social determinants of health, or you can even go one level deeper and look at the drivers of health equity. And these link to accountability and these link to social participation. So co-development with the intended uh, users. But I think that the starting point, I think that's, that's a little bit the issue, is to use technology as a starting point. In our work that we started last year, addressing racism and discrimination as determinants of health, um, we started a network called DISCO, Anti-Discrimination Health Equity. And within the network, we were exchanging best practices. And actually, a best practice coming from Northern Ireland, from an organization working with people from the Roma community, uh, mentioned a very low-tech uh, solution, which is a phone line. A person with a phone line to help people with their, not only their health problems, but often these are intersections of many different problems, problems at the same time. 
also social problems, language barriers. Um, so I think my, my point is you need to start from, from the issue and see whether technology can um, support you with achieving that goal. Okay, so in a kind of post-pandemic world now, I mean, obviously all of this kind of discrimination and equity was there pre-COVID, but perhaps COVID sort of shone a better, you know, spotlight in all of this. But Alistair, have you seen that there's been perhaps a better approach by healthcare professionals or the healthcare system, given that COVID showed that there was so much discrimination um, of people from, you know, different race, colour, creed, all of that kind of stuff? Is it getting better? Interesting, Interesting question. Uh, have I seen better? I think there are, there are examples, as you mentioned, of better in different parts of the world. I don't think there's an overall drive globally to try and improve that. Um, where, where would I see improvements? I, if I look at some of the, the pieces that, oh, for example, Fujifilm has produced a, an ultrasound scanner, handheld one. If you see the reaction of healthcare providers, the nurses providing maternity care in remote areas, they see that and go, I want that. If they get it, they have got an amazing decision support. It improves their status in the community. It improves delivery of service in the community. And I think that, as a technology, would help move things forward. And by actually improving the status of the nurses and the practitioners there, you're actually helping. Now, does that mean that they can then reach everyone? No, I guess not. But I think there is an opportunity there to use some technology to move it forward. Uh, I don't think there is systematic shifts in healthcare culture that has happened yet. I think there is recognition of it, and I hope the that this you know, appalling report from the US starts to drive some sort of interest in that because that is, uh, the moral outrage that goes with that is ridiculous. I'm not Can sure. you give a few details on that in case people in the audience aren't aware? Okay, the, the, sorry, and uh, this is something I just literally read. I haven't been into the background of it. Uh, it was reported in CNN, BBC and various others. Uh, black and brown mothers in the US are at three times the risk of death related to childbirth than white mothers. And that's even of some of the social determinants of health, like access to technology, access to hospitals, doctors, finances, etc. Even with that, there is a three times disparity. That is appalling. That's not a technology issue. It's not a medical issue. There's some underpinning cultural issue related, I would suggest, to racism that has to be systematically addressed because there is something appallingly wrong, because that's across the US country with enormous resources. Mm. Indeed. MEP Circle, your thoughts then on this, on what you've heard from the panellists so far, that, you know, we're talking, you know, the, the conversation here has been framed around this idea of technology, but is the problem even bigger? Yes, thank you. Yes, uh, I, I thought that in the beginning we were just uh, introducing ourselves and giving the opening statement later, but but okay. I mean, when you speak about inequalities, first, uh, there are different types of inequalities with different causes and definitely then the uh, tackling them and ways of tackling them are also different. So, so up until now, we have been discussing uh, social determinants of inequality, like uh, social status, uh, uh, 
being part of some minority group, etc. But there are there are other other types of inequalities. For instance, regional inequalities where you just cannot get adequate healthcare in due time. For instance, in rural areas, on islands, uh, in remote areas, etc. There is there are also regional disparities that exist across the European Union, which then again uh, have different underlying causes, different mem different uh, different member states having uh, different uh, different situations in terms of access to healthcare. So so uh, de so depending on which type of inequality we are talking about, the discussion is becomes a bit different. Uh, when we speak about technology, about uh, technologies in general, I think uh, technologies in themselves uh, uh, can be used uh, to to uh, to decrease inequalities, but they can also, if uh, if they are used in a in a different way, can uh, can also lead to higher inequality. So it really depends. They can really be a uh, useful tool, but uh, but it can also be vice versa. So it really depends on policy decisions. So what we do, what kind of policies we are taking, what kind of uh, regulation we introduce, what kind of uh, investments we make, etc. If uh, to to tackle to tackle inequality. So so in that sense, there are really uh, there are really big differences. Uh, when we speak about the European Union, obviously, and that's more more my topic. Uh, of course, uh, healthcare is primarily really uh, competence of the member states. So member states are responsible for financing an organ, organ, organization of healthcare systems, which means obviously that depending on their financial capabilities and organizational uh, capacities, uh, also also situation is not the same. So if you have uh, three, or, three or four times uh, bigger uh, healthcare spending per capita in a Western European member state than in Eastern European member state, of course, then the health outcomes, uh, unmet medical needs, etc., access to healthcare become very different. Uh, and of course, uh, when we speak about what EU can do, so uh, so EU has limited po uh, possibilities to act here because, as I said, we cannot, we cannot, uh, we don't have enough money in EU budget to re to redistribute that money in a way that uh, we have the same standards across the EU. So we have to use some other possibilities. Uh, so one uh, so one one thing that that is important uh, when when we speak about this is investment. So uh, as I said, I was uh, I was a rapporteur on uh, how to use cohesion policy to reduce this difference because the UK cohesion policy, EU funds, are there to reduce differences in terms of economic development across the EU. And of course, and of course this also relates to healthcare. So less, in general, less developed regions of the EU have worse health outcomes, which means that a lot of investment is also needed there in terms of health, uh, in ter in terms of health workforce, in terms of infrastructure. For instance, when you speak about telemedicine, of course, it can be very useful in remote and rural areas, but for but to, to, for that to be effective, we need to have uh, internet access also in these, these rural areas. So, so, so there are many things that uh, that that we can do through this uh, uh, through this EU funding. But one of the main problems that I that I would also like to mention is the problem of workforce. So, in the eastern part of Europe, uh, we have uh, we have been, we've been having since these countries entered the EU big migration of health workforce, not just doctors but also nurses towards the west. And of course, for that reason, we have a big lack of uh, uh, healthcare professionals in some parts of the EU, especially, as I said, in rural and remote areas. So this is also something that we need, that we need to tackle on the European level. And also, one thing that I would also like to mention when we speak when we are discussing what EU can do is also the question of uh, different uh, prices and different access to medicines. Because so first, all member states do not have the possibility to fund the same the same medicines, especially especially those most expensive ones 
on one side, but on the other side, it's also true that uh, all member states cannot get also the same price for the same medicine uh, uh, across the EU, because so especially smaller member states have a weaker bargaining position than some bigger ones. And of course, in that sense, uh, uh, the possibility to get uh, to get adequate price or lower lower the price of, of expensive medicines is also very problematic. So, so one thing that we are also discussing on the, on the European level is the question of joint procurement. So having you the same in the same way as we did with COVID-19 vaccine that uh, that when we had this joint purchasing on European level, which was used to strengthen the or should be should have been used to strengthen bargaining position and lower prices. This can also be done for very expensive medicines, uh, also for rare diseases, for instance, etc. Uh, so, 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 generally, yes, inequalities exist. There are different, different inequalities, different causes of inequalities. Uh, European Union uh, limited possibilities to act because of this division of competences, powers, funding, etc. But with the existing tools that we do do have on the European level, I think we can do more uh, to to address some of, some of these problems. But as I said, the, the problems are not the same depending on what type of inequality you are talking about. For instance, so we have the problem of access, uh, problem of remoteness, uh, problem of uh, lack of health workforce, problem of uh, pe of people not being able to pay or or pay for a certain part of a health treatment in some member states where co-payments uh, are higher than in some others. Uh, they, uh, the social determinants also problematic, for instance, uh, in terms of health literacy, educa education of certain populations who are, and changing the culture, the way how they think in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, uh, going to doctors etc so 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 really it's a very complex issue and uh, and depending on what type of inequalities we, we are talking about there are different causes and different instruments how to tackle it okay well let's bring in um your eu colleague of sorts um christine in there so we've sort of established i think all of us together have established and i'll bring um Karine in as well in a bit we've established that there are lots of different types of health um inequalities and lots of solutions so i think i've heard about education income you know, one thing we haven't spoken about also is access to green spaces, perhaps, um, healthy diets, you know, the kind of work people do, where they want to live, the, you know, within the EU structure, are they moving away? Um, ethnicity, you know, are you able-bodied dis um, or disabled, age, race, class, social standing? Um, so the question for you then, as the sort of representative of the European Commission, what are you guys doing? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, of course, that is a very multifaceted um, yep. answer that is required. Here. And an unfair one, from, an unfair question for me, but yeah, go. No, no, no. How uh, about it? I, I can provide some uh, perspectives from the research side, and a lot is being done um, from uh, the perspective of funding from EU for Health, but also Horizon Europe um, and research, supporting research. I think um, I, I completely support this whole debate of health inequalities and moving on the debate to talking about health inequities. Um, I personally think that um, technology does have a very important role in addressing these inequities. However, what is super important is um, that we consider the aspects of access affordability and availability of these technologies. Um, all of this cannot be seen, uh, I mean, it has to be uh, seen as part of an ecosystem. We have to look at health systems and investing into health systems and looking at uh, the structural drivers, what is, why can certain groups of people not access um, health systems or why, why they don't 
may, may not want to. Um, so I think um, understanding the structural drivers of inequities is a very important part here. Understanding the social determinants of health, the barriers of access, um, and also dealing with innovative solutions, coming up with innovative sol solutions on how we can ad best address those, while at the same time involving these people, involving patient groups or in involving um, those that uh, may find themselves in vulnerable population, uh, in vulnerable situations. And in fact, um, within Horizon Europe, there is uh, a call for funding um, that is looking at exactly this area, um, providing, um, well, ensuring um, access and um, sustainable access to innovative healthcare um, activities in this area, understanding structural drivers and coming up with innovative solutions on how to address these. But what I would like to also mention is uh, the need for col collaboration, um, involving patients in this, involving healthcare professionals in this, but also um, industry, for example, the private sector, um, when, when it comes to developing these um, innovations and making sure that they, they reach um, those patients that need them and, and faster. So collaborating a little bit better with European member states, because one thing that MEP Sokol was talking about was that it's essentially, and perhaps it's an unfair thing to say again, um, you do have a two-tier Europe. You've got the West versus the East. And then you've also got the smaller uh, member states who, of course, perhaps can't put all of this extra money that is needed into their healthcare system that have, of course, been devastated by COVID. So is there a way in which there can be sort of, I don't know, more information sharing, more telling member states, listen, look, this is, you know, Horizon Europe. This is where your funds are available. This is where you can, you know, inject, um, you know, more cash, more, more, more resources into your systems to kind of improve the situation for the people um, that you know need to access healthcare. Absolutely, and this is uh, very much of an issue. But as we've heard, and um, MP Sokol uh, rightly pointed out, health particularly is um, under the auspices of the member states. So it's a competency of the member states. Yes, um, we're now talking increasingly, increasingly about um, European Health Union. I mean, we have seen what. Um, joint procurement can do with uh, especially vaccines and that we can be stronger together and um, this is also very much um, what the re revision of the pharmaceutical legislation is um, trying to do to really create a single market for medicines, look at how to get those innovations um, on the market faster, um, looking at also enabling um, faster availability of um, generics and biosimilars and also looking at uh, transparency of public funding, for example. But yeah, there's a lot to be done when it comes to East and West and within Horizon Europe there are um, several activities also to ensure that these widening countries um, that um, they catch up and when forming consortia, it is always uh, research consortia, it is very important to look at that balance. Um, and when these um, information activities and info days take place, very much of that is happening actually online. And we're hoping 
uh, to attract um, uh, those who may not, uh, who, who may find it a little bit difficult, uh, more difficult to come to Brussels, for example. So reaching out with various uh, information and public um, awareness campaigns, um, especially to the Eastern countries, is very important, especially for Horizon Europe. Okay, thank you. Uh, Corinne, your thoughts on what you've heard the panellists say so far then? I mean, obviously, I don't want to get into medical deserts just quite yet, but obviously, you know, you've been doing, you know, you've had these five countries as case studies. Um, what would you add as to, you know, the kind of state of the healthcare in rural areas specifically? Yes, thank you for that question and a really interesting discussion. Uh, so many uh, points to, to, to discuss actually in more detail. Um, there, there are indeed a number of health inequalities, depending on how you would like to define them, as uh, MEP Sokol uh, uh, already pointed out. We have been tackling or we have been looking at uh, the in unequal availability of health workers and health services in these five countries. And uh, this is definitely a problem because also, and, and this was mentioned a couple of uh, times before in the discussion, medical desert areas or the populations that have these difficulties in accessing health and care are not just about medical they are often areas where there are also economical challenges or social or have been deprived of uh, public investments in general so there is a sort of a, a, a they 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 suffer from compounded vulnerabilities as you call them so there's overlapping vulnerabilities and if you would then make the maps such as the maps that we have made um, and you overlap them or for these different vulnerabilities you will see and if you then compare it with what is also called the um, geography of discontent in the European Union you will see there will be overlaps so tackling medical deserts and the populations in them the, the, the communities in them is not just about increasing health and care uh, accessibility, availability. It's also uh, about giving shape to the European project. And while, which we all said, like this is, we, we are going for shared prosperity in solidarity. And while we, of course, acknowledge that uh, the organization of health systems is the member state's competence. I would really like to challenge a number of the interventions made before uh, that it should be a European concern because, I mean, next year we will be having elections for the European Parliament. We would like as many people as possible to turn up and cast their ballots. But if, if we want these people to care about the European project, but if we do not care about the people, the people will not care about Europe, so to speak. So uh, tackling medical deserts is about much more than just health and care uh, access services. And um, another thing, what was said about uh, the digital innovations or the, the innovations, I like the statement that was made uh, about um, the, the uh, technological innovations that actually can improve the status of health, health and care workers. I like that a lot. That is absolutely true. In the work that we did in the in the five countries where we co-created uh, policy solutions uh, 
for mitigating the challenges in medical deserts. We have come across numerous ideas for technological interventions. And this, for example, also the handheld uh, ultrasound for pregnancy monitoring, numerous other things, uh, mobile labs, mobile clinics, uh, mobile doctors and nurses uh, to start with. Um, uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, technical support and, in, in, uh, uh, well, electronic communication, well-functioning uh, electronic patient files. And indeed, you will, you will need broadband everywhere, internet, I mean, fast internet. But the interesting thing was what we found in our five countries that they didn't just mention these innovations or these technological interventions, it was always accompanied by, uh, but we also need the soft infrastructure. We will need professional standards and guidelines uh, for the appropriate use of the technologies. Who to use it for, when to use it in the patient journey, uh, when will it be most uh, uh, effective actually. Um, it was also about creating support networks for the health and care workers that use these technologies in remote and rural areas. So e-teamwork, e-consultation, peer consultation. It was also about a lot about health literacy also, and not just for the populations. That was really interesting because there are a lot of uh, um, uh, observations and interventions made like it's also about digital literacy of the health and care workers. We shouldn't just assume that patients and citizens in communities in medical deserts areas are less tech savvy than the health and care workers. This may not be the case at all. There is no one size fits all. And that is exactly the reason indeed why you need to develop solutions in honest and open consultation with each other, this whole co-creation idea. Uh, whether they are policy, really policy level solutions and interventions or uh, technological uh, solutions. That would be my uh, first take on this. Thank you. Thank you, Corinne. Um, Alice, I'll come to you then. So Corinne was there talking about the kind of tech health. Um, I want to pick up on that point. So one thing that has sprung up, obviously, from the pandemic is GP practices taking their services online, the e-consult, the phone call. Um, as someone that works in the medical profession, do you think it actually works? And one thing I'd also like to add on to that is, you know, as someone that lives in a big city, um, or is perhaps of a younger generation, I thought, great, this is fantastic. The last time I spoke to my GP practice, I spoke to a medical student who then got something wrong. And I don't mean, you know, to be nasty, but you know, so that person perhaps wasn't as skilled as perhaps the GP would be. Um, but also I've seen this malaise, you could call it, of, um, you know, doctors taking their services, you know, that they provide to patients, you know, via the phone calls, and it's spreading to rural areas where, of course, in these practices, you expect more of a kind of family doctor style approach. You want to have that relationship. So has this advance in tech that we've seen because of the pandemic, is it right or wrong? And are we ever going to see perhaps it rolled back? Ah, good question. Um, if I look back to my career, go back 10 years, you're in places like Nigeria, we rolled out telemedicine. It's a term that's flung around everywhere. What is telemedicine and e-consults? It was fantastic. It actually was fantastic. It worked remarkably well, despite lousy bandwidth. We put lots of effort into it. We trained lots of people. I came back to the UK and I talked to some of my colleagues in general practice about telemedicine, say, what are you doing? And they're like, mm, not, not very interested. Look warm at best. I thought, what's, what's wrong with these people? This works immensely well. 
And then I sat down and I tried to teach my parents how to use Zoom. I don't know if anyone's done that. Or they've had Zoom. I'm sorry, apologies to Zoom. Teams. <laughs> All of them. It. Any of them. I've tried to teach them to do that. If anyone has done that, it's an immensely frustrating process on a touch screen for people who've never, it's just not part of their history, not part of their life until that point. And that's what telemedicine had turned a lot of these GP's surgeries into because a lot of their patients are older. So they spent their time doing Zoom coaching calls. It interrupted the flow, it interrupted the relationship because the technology wasn't there. So I then taught one of my uh, colleagues in, uh, in Norway runs a company there and they built a telemedicine unit and they stuck it onto oil platforms and onto vessels. And that telemedicine unit has one green button on it. So as long as it's plugged in and you press the green button, it works because it's run from the shore. Right. So the people experiencing it or using it don't need to do anything. An expert runs it. And I think we haven't thought through some of those inequities in knowledge around how to use Zoom. Does anyone in this room feel competent about sorting Zoom when it decides not to play? Hands up. Okay, there you go. That's the younger <laughs> generation. <laughs> and that's the younger generation. So will it roll back? No, I hope it improves. And I think the technology improves. You need self-healing software that sorts itself. There's various other pieces. So it is a very useful tool. It needs fast broadband. It needs people who want to use it. And a lot of people don't. And it needs the opportunity to have your face-to-face -face with your doctor if that's what you prefer. Well, I think it, it, it definitely improves the situation. I mean, for example, if you're working, um, it's a lot easier to send an e-consult to have the doctor call you on the phone. Um, but then sometimes what I, I think, and this is me speaking, uh, speaking from a personal um, opinion here, um, when you need to get into the surgery because there's something you really need the doctor to talk to you about in person, they don't want to do that anymore. That's a problem. And that's a problem. That's a systematic problem. And it's, I would guess it's also around to your uh, medical deserts area or health deserts is access to resources. You need people. <clears throat> and those people can't be everywhere unless you have unlimited resources and unlimited people. So we have quite a lot of issues to manage here, not just the technology. Okay. Um, l one last question on this before we move to medical deserts. Um, MEP Sokol, I mean, obviously, we, we, we know that the elections are coming up in 2024. So what sort of legislative proposals can MEPs put forward? Because there is a lot that you can do on a European level. Uh, first, MEPs cannot uh, table legislative proposals. Only, only the Commission can do that. Uh, so, the, so, there's, so, the, so that's the that's the first problem that we have on the European <laughs> level. Uh, but currently, yes. But currently, we are working on uh, two 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 issues, uh, two far, two important uh, parts of legislation. First is the health data space that I'm the rapporteur for. So I think this is something that can be that can be useful. Uh, but again, for that we will need a lot of infrastructure, a lot of investment, etc. So the whole idea is for primary use of data to facilitate primary use of data by medical professionals, which would mean that every patient in Europe should have uh, their uh, health data in a digital. In a, in a digital setting, electronic health records, which will then be uh, interoperable and interchangeable uh, across the EU. So, for instance, if you are, tr let's say that uh, that you are that you are traveling from one member state to another, you have to see a doctor. They will be able to access all of your medical data electronically, which means that they will not have to do again the same diagnostics, the same treatments that that have already been done before. And this is something that can also be useful within within the member states, especially for people 
or traveling from rural areas to access hospitals, etc. And of course, there is also the secondary use of data, which is important. So the idea is to to create a European system where 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 we will, we will be able to use this whole. Uh, data across the EU, which is now not uh, available uh, for research innovation, and, and which is of course very important because uh, we definitely need, and hence we come uh, back to technologies. We need new medical technologies. We need innovation. We need investment, and to do that, we also need much more uh, data to be uh, to be used in Europe than we have now. Of course, we know that investments in research innovation are now uh, are are bypassing Europe to a large extent, going to the US, China, etc. And we definitely need to do something uh, to tackle this problem. So one of them is, as I said, the possibilities to use data in Europe, which was not used before. And also on the pharmaceutical legislation, there's the second package that we are now working on. The idea is also to create system of incentives so that uh, we have new investments into new and innovative medical technologies in Europe. Uh, so, of course, this is not uh, this is not enough. We, we, we can definitely do much more on the European level, but there's a state to play with legislation now. When you speak of funding, we have the EU for Health program. It is it is uh, uh, around 5.3 billion euros. Uh, that that's not a lot. We wanted more. European Parliament uh, during negotiations uh, asked for more than 9 billion euros, but the member states in the council downgraded this to 5.3 billion. But still, it's 12 times bigger than the previous EU health budget in the previous seven years. So definitely, it's a step forward. Also, also we have the cohesion policy, which is the biggest source of investments into healthcare from European level. In the period from 2014 to 2020, more than 25 billion euros was invested into health workforce, medical deserts, building of health infrastructure, etc. And this is something that definitely will be also used now. And and also we have the recovery and resilience plans. Sorry, MP Sokol, is that working? All these billions that are going into healthcare systems is actually working, from what you can see. Uh, to some extent, yes, it's not perfect. We still have a, a long way to go, but situation has definitely improved in some in some member states. But still, we need definitely much more investment than we have now in the recovery and resilience plans. That's the, this whole additional EU budget for the for the next several years. Uh, healthcare and, and digitalization are the main priorities. So definitely, there is a big possibility uh, to uh, to resolve some of these problems. But definitely, we have to do more. But we cannot do everything from the European level. So we can pr give provide legal framework. We can provide financial financial incentives and financial help to those who need it, but still member states are the ones who have to define what their priorities are and they have to manage uh, manage all, all of this funding. And I would also like to mention when we speak of COVID and the lessons learned from COVID, I think one of the lessons in many member states is that we definitely um, uh, neglected the primary care in general member states not it's not the same in all member states but in many member states uh, primary care has become unattractive it has become uh, something that there is not a lot of investments into uh, uh, there are no specializations medical professionals are very reluctant to go into primary care and this is something that all definitely also needs to be tackled so how to how to uh, to to make primary care more attractive and to get people actually to go and work there for instance, in my country, in Croatia, we have many islands. It's almost impossible with all of the financial incentives to have a, to have somebody finish who just finished medical school to go and work there. And this, uh, so these are these are these are these are um, these are big problems. Of course, we can do something on the European level, but also member states also have to step up, uh, step up and do much more with the EU funding and, but also in terms of better organization and management of their healthcare systems as well. And just one last point on the, on Horizon. So Horizon is a great program, but uh, with Horizon, one of the main problems is uh, participation. 
because uh, because uh, it, when you have a kind of a tender for uh, for universities, research institutes, etc., for for research projects of uh, and you have that was before Brexit, but uh, but it's still to some extent applicable. If you have Cambridge uh, consortium which is built around Cambridge or Oxford on one side, and in some Croatian university or Bulgarian university on the other, who you think will get this funding? So, 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 so Horizon is built in a way that everybody can compete in the European Union with each other. And of course, those who already have stronger infrastructure, stronger, stronger personnel, uh, better experts, uh, more, more funding already are definitely an advantage there. So this is why we are also working on how to widen the participation, also make it possible that others can compete, at least on similar level as those who who are richer and more powerful, etc. But it's also something that is that is not easy. That's one one of the problems that we also have in terms of inequalities. Is also how to actually uh, strengthen the participation of the weaker member states in in Horizon as well. Okay. Um, so Raymond, can, your thoughts on what MEP Sokol was saying there, and is there a problem, especially when it comes to funding, that some member states just aren't plugged in? Well, the point that I want to make about funding, <clears throat> I. I agree, 5.3 billion for the seven-year uh, EU for Health program. But I think what is also important is then look, at, look a little bit deeper. Because if you look at the EU for Health program, at the regulation itself, I think it's, it's great and it is a step forward that health inequalities is uh, recognized and acknowledged. It is mentioned uh, throughout the document several times. <clears throat> However, when you then look at the 10 kind of, no, no, not kind of, when you then look at the 10 uh, specific objectives that are mentioned in the EU for Health program, health inequalities is mentioned in the first objective, which is great. But then it's put together with um, tackling communicable and uncommunicable diseases, with health promotion, disease pre uh, prevention, and with the promotion of access to healthcare. In other words, it's, jumbled up. It, it's kind of diluted in there, which is, which is unfortunate. And we would like to see health inequalities or health inequities disparities to be an objective in itself. And then when you look at the 2023 work program, because this regulation is then translated into work programs where the funding goes, and out of the 700, almost 36 million euro, mm -hmm. only 2.25 million is earmarked specifically for addressing cancer inequalities, which we really feel is, is too little. And what we also do not see, we mention it, and also hear from, from DJ RTD, the importance of the social determinants of health, they are not mentioned throughout the document. So there is no link with the social determinants of health. So on the one hand, we hear, okay, health is not a member state competence. However, there, there is the EU for Health program. And at the same time, there are other EU instruments, like for example, the EU pillar on social rights, um, that can be addressed and have a huge impact on, on people's health. So I think there is, and I agree with Corinna, um, it should be uh, a European concern, uh, health inequalities. I think it's a concern, but the impetus just isn't there. Well, um, social determinants of health are super important. Um, I am sure that it is in there in Horizon Europe, certainly. In, when, you, when you go down to uh, the call specific level, we, we have specific calls that are looking at that. Um, you said earlier, is it working? The funding, is the funding working? Well, you don't, um, do not forget that there's a huge need there. And some of these things, some of these funding efforts will take time to, to where the, the research findings will emerge. 
And then it is going to be about communicating those research findings, sharing best practices, what works, um, networking, learning from other countries, and seeing how certain lessons learned from some countries can be used in other countries. So this is not going to be a quick fix. Um, and I think all the funding that is available is looking at different aspects. So we've got EU for Health, we've got Horizon Europe, and within Horizon Europe, there is lots of different um, research funding available as well, starting from the pre-competitive area to um, the later stages also, and looking at different European countries and also beyond. Well, let me ask perhaps, um, Raymond, I'll put this one to you then. Um, the WHO, they've mused over the idea of having a European health union that would see member states collaborate more. Um, given that we've seen lots of collaboration between member states during the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we can see that coordination on health is something that can be done. So is that possibly an avenue that sounds like an idea that will never happen, but perhaps? <laughs> okay, so, so, sorry, because I, I do not a entirely European, understand. Yeah. A European health union that would mm -hmm. see member states collaborate more yeah. generally um, on health. Um, and then given we've seen, you know, we, we have the example of the pandemic where you saw a more coordinated approach to healthcare mm -hmm. because, well, essentially we all had to. So is that something, um, something that yeah. we can use? Well, I, I must say this is not my expertise, and I know that you know these these member state uh, level competencies, you know, mm. they are laid down in treaties. So uh, I know that there is that there are efforts indeed made to uh, create this European Health Union, um, with with the pandemic as an example, as you just mentioned. Um, but I think that is as far as my knowledge on that uh, goes. Well, yes, there are several efforts and we have seen during the pandemic um, the benefits of working together. Um, ultimately, it's up to the member states and the European Commission is certainly playing its part in saying, look, we need to work together, um, helping coordinating certain issues. And there have been positive examples, for example, uh, just pointing out the um, regulation, the HTA regulation, so health technology assessment. There is going to be some parts that are going to be done jointly um, via the member states, notably the uh, joint clinical assessments, whereas the reimbursement aspects are still very much uh, member states' um, um, issues. Um, we, we're seeing some development. It's going to be interesting to, of course, see what is happening with the elections next year and where the next plans are going. Um, but. Personally, I'm, of course, all for it, and there is lots of benefits, so we have to work together to, to make it work, I think. And Alistair, what do you make of what everyone's been saying about collaboration? I mean, it's an, it's, it's an obvious, it, yeah. it, it helps. There's no evidence to suggest that, if you do, that collaboration is a bad thing. <laughs> I think trying to get collaboration through an EU treaty might take a little while. <laughs> Indeed, but it does. There's a process. To, it does not mean to say you shouldn't do it. Uh, and I think there's also other uh, initi initiatives going on that would, without being an EU treaty, the EU could perhaps support to drive those. There's Connected Health Alliance and various other ways of looking at pooling records together without making it necessarily the EU directly involved. Mm -hmm. Out with my area of expertise. <laughs> no worries. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because, <laughs> you know, everyone was talking about collaboration. Um, so, um, Karina, I'm going to come back to you. I mean, I know we've been speaking about um, medical deserts and desertification, but I wanted to, you know, put the spotlight um, on it now. I mean, obviously, this is an EU-led, um, European Commission-led initiative. You're a head project. Talk us through um, the sort of salient points of it. And what I wanted to ask you on it is, 
I mean, obviously, you guys have got a roadmap. Um, your findings will be released, I think, in May. But how confident are you that the findings that you have will actually be acted upon? Hmm. Yeah, good question. Uh, thank you, uh, Mariam. Uh, so one of the things that we set out to do and uh, that we were supposed to do also uh, with the funding that we received from DG Sante is to come up with a definition. And the definition, the definition that we developed then was on the basis of the research that we did and on the basis of the consultations also with the people in the case study areas that we came up with was that the medical desert is the end point of a complex process that's called medical desertification. And this implies a continuous and increasing inability of a given population to access health and care services in a timely and contextually relevant manner. So there are a couple of things about that definition that you should be uh, uh, that you should that we can pay attention to. For example, the fact that we are not necessarily talking about geographical areas, although I myself may have created that impression, that's not necessarily the case. It talks about given populations. We are also stressing the fact that uh, health and care services should be contextually relevant. And one of the mottos in the head is context is everything. Again, not, it's not that one size fits all. And uh, a third thing about this definition is that, uh, and I've mentioned it before, it has come across uh, a couple of times already in the discussion, medical deserts are not just a medical desert. There are a number of social determinants, uh, economic determinants, cultural determinants, uh, commercial determinants, perhaps also uh, to health in, for these given populations. And here I want to segue a little bit into the discussions that you had on the European Health Union, because in the COVID pandemic, uh, we have seen indeed that the, that the inequalities, existing inequalities, were exacerbated. And as MEP Sokol said, we realized, started to realize that the primary care had been neglected for a long time already. This is true. Same holds true for the health workforce. The health workforce in Europe and, well, globally, actually, has been in a crisis for decades already. Um, and not so much has been done about it. So when there was first talk about European Health Union in the midst of the first, you know, COVID surges and the panic and everything, this was a hooray moment for Waymos and like-minded organizations. Finally, more cooperation. Finally, we can get on the table the discussion if the European Union should not have a bigger mandate on health. And then you get to discussions about, well, you need a mandate change, it will take so much uh, time and uh, whatever. But I mean, within a year, that's uh, Ursula von der Leyen floated the idea of the European Health Union. Within a year, member states started to backtrack already. And what we have now seen in uh, as initiative, concrete initiatives in the framework of the European Health Union is, while commendable and really, really welcome uh, as such, it's not nearly as ambitious as I'm, I, I really am sure von der Leyen has meant it. So uh, it, it, this, this deserves our attention. And perhaps even some uh, pushback also from, well, civil societies like Waymos or perhaps also EFA, I don't know, um, that the European Health Union should be a much more ambitious exercise than, than it has been till now. Again, 
uh, kudos to everything that's happening also on the pharmaceutical legislation, big developments really, but there is more to be done. And I, I really think that it could be done. Uh, we've heard also about cohesion funds, recovery resilience funds, uh, EU for Health, Horizon, these are really, these are sizable amounts of money, come on. I mean, these are zeros. You can't even imagine how many zeros and how many euros they're in there. But uh, and, and a number of countries have taken uh, uh, measures, have used those funds in their recovery resilience plans, for example, to invest in primary healthcare, for example, and to some extent in the health workforce, but not in numbers and quality and status of health workers, because that is what, uh, what's missing. That people, you want people to want to work in health and care, and they do not, that's not the case anymore. And there's lots of different reasons for that, but how can we use the money from the EU instruments to actually make it more attractive to work in health and care, to give it more status, to give them better salaries, better working conditions, professional, you know, uh, continuous professional education, et cetera, et cetera. And if we do that across the union in an equitable manner, then we can also, I'm sure of that, um, mitigate some of the health worker mobility and, and migration issues in the sense that they, that itself is creating inequalities but we can we can tackle that at the root causes i'm sure of that thank you okay so i'll let mep soko apply to that one so it seems i mean there's a little bit too much of you know on a european level too much blah 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 and not too much um ambition so how can you do more mep soko yes you should definitely do more but but uh in mo most ambitious uh, activities or most ambitious initiatives from the European level are usually blocked by some member states. For instance, health technology assessment. So the whole idea of health technology assessment is to create one European system of health technology assessment to substitute the 27 national systems. So that if you're a company who wants to introduce new medical technology, that you can that you do it only once across EU and not having to go to the 27 individual member states. But because of the opposition of some larger member states who didn't want to have this common European system, now we have... Now we have now now instead of having one system instead of 27, we got the 28 system. So the 27 national systems are still there, and now in addition to that, on top of that, we have the European system. So 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 in most cases, when you want uh, initiatives to have more activities on European level, are are stopped by some member states who don't want to do that. Because if you want to have stronger health union, if you want to have uh, if you have, want to have more equality, if you have uh, to have, if you want to have harmonized uh, working working conditions for health professionals across the EU, this needs to be funded by somebody. Those who pay most into the EU budget do not want to do that. So the, and so it's always kind of a balancing act in, in strengthening EU, having EU giving EU financial capabilities to do more on one side, but also having some member states who just don't want to pay for that. So have, we have have to be honest on also on that. So it's not just the the the, the fault of the institute of the Commission, for instance, definitely not of the Parliament. Parliament always wants more actions on European level, but uh, usually the problem is with some member states who don't want to have stronger EU in health. And in general, traditionally, health was always a marginal topic in, in the Brussels bubble. This has this has somewhat changed because of COVID, 
healthcare has become the focus and we should and we saw that that uh, there's problems like pandemics which member states cannot resolve by themselves even though some of them tried in the beginning closing of borders export restrictions etc just uh, just uh, uh, creating additional problems instead of solving them then we had common european action and because of this kind of we get, got the momentum to have more healthcare on eu level but this momentum unfortunately is, is now diminishing because of the new topics the the inflation the war in ukraine etc and this is also politically politically a problem so yes we need more european european action we need more european european funding we not need you to resolve problems which member states cannot resolve by themselves for instance immigration of health workforce creating better working conditions etc but then we also need more solidarity between in the member states because in the end those who will who are more well off who pay more into the eu budget will that will, will be the ones who will have to fund a big big part of that but uh, not to be only pessimistic uh, I also want to say that if you look at the new member states from Eastern Europe, who exceeded in 2004, 2007, and Croatia in 2013, you can see that in all these countries since accession, health outcomes have improved, and they have improved significantly. So being part of the EU, being uh, having access to all of this funding, etc., to the common market, etc., actually does work. It, it makes health systems better. Of course, it's not it's not perfect. There is still a long way to go, but definitely EU has had a positive impact of, on healthcare systems. I think we can also generally say that. But of course, definitely we need more. Okay, well, a couple of questions before we run to, um, obviously, the Q&A um, from the audience. Um, Alistair, I wanted to, you know, take it down a notch from the EU and actually look at the rural communities. Um, some, is it, I mean, basically, is it time that we had rural-specific um, solutions to tackle the kind of rural problems that you have? I mean, for example, instead of having, you know, healthcare professionals, you know, going to universities in big cities, you know, have those universities in rural areas. So there's a greater understanding of the needs um, and desires of those communities. And then perhaps also if those bases of education were more in rural areas, then you might attract the right people as well. No, I think, I mean, you're, you're absolutely correct. I think that's, uh, it's a missing piece. Uh, in Scotland, there's the University of the Highlands and Islands based in Inverness. And uh, it does postgraduate education, particularly for people who want to be, doc well, just in one section of it, doctors in rural areas in the Highlands of Scotland. Now, obviously, it goes broader than that, but it attracts then a group of people who are interested in that. It creates a community, it creates education. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a great initiative, and I hope that then starts to help. Uh, they also, I think, if I'm correct, uh, they tend to recruit people from those communities, if they possibly can, into the medical courses because the people who lived in those areas are more likely to go back and have a, have a social link to them, which makes a, a huge deal of sense. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot we can do. I think there's a lot we can do in the, the status of these uh, health professionals, whatever professional background they come from. Moving to a rural area is often seen as just falling off the cliff and being lost in the wilderness. It's not. It's a totally different specialty. It's a general, it's a specialist generalist, and uh, we really need to value those people an awful lot more and set up the systems, as Corinne was saying, to uh, train them, value them, continuous education, create the communities. We've just got to get that done. Uh, and I'll plug the faculty in, in the Royal College again for that because it's, it's a start. It really is a start down that. And it's a global, it's global and it's charity. It's, uh, maybe we'll come to the EU MEP circle and I'll see if we can get some funding. <laughs>
<laughs> okay, let's go to the audience questions then. Um, I think for a lot of them, they have answered who they want to speak to or have answered the question. So I guess you guys just put your hands up who wants to answer this one. This is from Harold. Um, they say, ensuring access to self-care and increasing health education can reduce health inequality in the EU. Latest figures show that 80% of the EU citizens want to manage their health and only 20% know how to do this. Should there not be an EU health literacy strategy to tackle health inequality in the EU? So we're talking about health literacy. Um, who wants to take this one? Okay, lady from the commission then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can certainly start. Um, I think it's a very important topic. Um, I'm not quite sure. I think it is recognised within uh, the plans um, on digitalisation uh, that um, health literacy is, in fact, very, very important and uh, shouldn't be uh, neglected. Um, another thing why this is important is I mean, we haven't talked about artificial intelligence yet today, uh, which is a little bit... Well, here at Euractive, we're talking about that tomorrow. <laughs> yes, carry on. <laughs> so, um, I think uh, AI, as uh, with other areas, it's going to be ever more important also in the area of health. And um, digital literacy, health literacy, these are the, the starting points. Um, if we want to... Um, so would you say that the Commission is excited about um, the possibilities that AI um, presents, even though, especially from the US, and we saw um, our friend from Google, who, well, a former friend of Google, um, you know, they're now saying, you know, these leading experts in AI are now saying, well, listen, look, we need to have a rethink about this. Um, well, excited, but also wary, I think, is the way to sum it up. Um, there are, of course, uh, a lot of promises of AI. Also for healthcare, I mean, if you just look at radiology um, and what AI can do in radiology and supporting radiologists um, in getting better readings. Uh, but there are also some worries, and especially in the context of health equities, there are a lot of, lot of uh, question marks on how do we avoid bias. And there's lots of different nuances to bias. So I think... We need to look at regulation also as a tool to, to really make sure that um, AI is not getting dangerous per se. Uh, but at the same time, we want to remain competitive. Uh, the EU re needs to remain competitive with uh, those parts of the world that are um, advancing uh, without maybe not so much regulation. So it's about a balance. So in a way, you're sort of answering what Raymond was saying, that technology doesn't necessarily lead to equality. It doesn't uh, necessarily lead to, but it's an important piece of the puzzle. So it's up to us to regulate it and make sure that it can. Or um, it's up to us to say, uh, or to raise our hands, um, um, and especially the civil society, to raise their hands and say when it doesn't work or it works against specific groups of people and that is really one one danger of it let's be clear Indeed. um Karin, yes i can see your hand perfect go ahead yes civil society is raising its hand <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah no i i i think it's a very important um, uh, remark from the audience uh, health literacy we should do much much more about that um, again, not just in communities, patients, citizens, but also uh, within the health and care workforce community, so to speak. Um, but here I want to echo uh, what Raymond said right at the beginning, I think, that 
if you do not design interventions with a specific aim in mind to reduce health inequalities, even when it is about health literacy, they may actually end up uh, increasing health inequalities. So it is extremely important to understand the realities of the people that you want to help, the people who are suffering the most from these health inequalities or disparities. Um, you need to uh, uh, eliminate a lot of bias and discrimination on the, on, the, on the part of health and care workers. This has also been mentioned before. Very, very important point. And my, one of my mottos is always like, the last mile should be your first concern. And what do I mean by that? is that many technological interventions or, or, or any interventions, by the way, they tend to benefit those who are already sort of capable of fending for their own. So uh, digital health intervention, uh, sorry, uh, health literacy interventions uh, sort of blanket in a blanket intervention in populations will tend to benefit those who are actually already a little bit health literate. So if you want to uh, reach those who are really illiterate, our parents who we want to teach Zoom, for example, you will need to do much more. And that that's the last mile. That's the last 10% of the people you want to use, that, that you want to reach. If you do not pay specific attention to them, they will be left further behind, especially in comparison with those who are, you know, taking up the interventions uh, uh, quickly. They will be left further behind than they were before. So you're actually increasing... Uh, uh, health inequalities. Thank you. Okay, um, so understanding who needs help there. We've only got one minute. So, Alison, I'm going to come to you this one, so you're going to have to answer it really quickly, um, even though it's a massive question. Um, Dinner says there are major inequalities when it comes to the representation of anyone who isn't Western, white, and male in medical data. And one thing we haven't spoken about has been um, data and analytics. Um, so, in medical data and healthcare research. How do the panelists view, but I'm talking to Alistair, um, the role of data altruism as outlined in the Data Governance Act as one solution to this serious problem? But perhaps you can answer it just looking at, you know, what they say, the, the sort of parameters of the data that isn't there on everyone. I think there's a, a massive opportunity if we can get past the various privacy issues, interoperability issues, ways to put systems together, looking at how data is classified and gathered to look at what's actually going on. One of the challenges with any form of scientific study is it looks very specifically at a specific group of people to minimize all the variables round about so you can get to an outcome. That means it applies only to that narrow group. I think the opportunity for population-based research could be huge, but boy, there's some legal work to do. Okay, um, I want to quickly, thank you so much. Yes, go ahead. And also wrap up your final thought very quickly. Okay. About 20 seconds, go for it. Okay. No, I, I, I just wanted to <clears throat> build on that with a very simple example. In the, in the pandemic, the first wave in the UK, men with a black skin were 3.7 times more likely to die from COVID versus their peers with a white skin. In Europe, we do not have these data. So I just want to make the point that getting better quality, equality data that allows for a sufficient level of disaggregation is needed. Thank you. The quality of data always needed and um, looking at clinical trials and clinical studies we need better uh, representation and diversity within clinical trials because that is when it also starts. Um, so I think this is an issue that 
definitely needs to be tackled as well. Well, I definitely wish someone does look at the data into COVID-19. Um, that's something I'd like to know as someone who got it three times. Um, <laughs> over to recently recovered as well. <laughs> My daughter got it four times. Oh, she beats me, okay. I, yeah. I think there's, a, there's another piece that fits with this is that somehow, how do we look at the other data sets that are out there and integrate them into medical? Because we keep talking about the sort of medical and illness data. I'm doing some work just now with a startup which is looking at integrating mental fitness interventions into routine games, such as, I don't know, game of th uh, such as Minecraft. We'll put it into Minecraft. You were about to say Game of Thrones, weren't you? Yeah. I was going to say Game yeah. of Thrones. Sorry, it was, a, it was an article I was reading this no morning. One Apologies. Liked. Apologies. So, uh, but so put it in Minecraft, you gather you people who would like to take control of their health, many people say that but then don't do it, play games, many people play games, 100 million play Minecraft every day, if they all get a little bit of cognitive behavioural therapy every day, is that a good thing? Can we then measure it and integrate it more into population stats? Potentially. Just different ways of delivering this might be quite important. Let me be circle. Yes, thank you. Yeah, uh, I'm glad that we are uh, discussing data because uh, we are current. I'm the rapporteur on health data space, and this is something that can really, really, really make a big difference. That's some of the. That's one of those few EU pieces of EU legislation which actually creates something new. If we get this right, we will be able to act to access much, much more data than it than it was previously previously the case, so both for healthcare professionals but also for research. So this is something which is very important. I hope that we are able to have the political agreement with in the parliament and then with the member states by the end of this year and if we do that then definitely def definitely we can have something completely new in the next in the next years i think when we speak but also to to connect this to to literacy I, uh, definitely covid has shown us that health uh, literacy is a big problem in, we we saw we saw all of those problems with people spreading conspiracy theories etc we saw this with vaccine hesitance in some member states for, uh, so we had also big diversity here. So in some member states, you had uh, 80 or 90 percent of people uh, getting vaccinated. But in some countries, like in my country, it's less than 60 percent. So we also see big diversity, big differences across the EU, which so shows how much needed is uh, to have a really a strategy and much and much more investments and much more action on uh, health literacy. But it's also important uh, when you speak about uh, literacy to also speak about not just the patients but health workers as well. Because uh, because uh, when you speak about uh, about being open to new technologies, to electronic health records, to telemedicine, all of this digitalization, exchange of data, etc., this is also something that that needs to that that uh, needs to be taken up by health workers as well. And we know that there is will be a lot of resistance there, uh, to, and which is definitely a problem. So definitely we will have to do a lot also also to to try to. Um, to uh, tra train health work workers into these new uh, digital technologies as well, into getting them to accept them, also and to use them and to use them in and to use them in practice, uh, and, uh, and and but also not to not to create uh, too much additional administrative bureaucratic burden on them. This is, for instance, why I propose in the on, in the report on health data space that we have longer transition period period for implementation for medical pro professionals in primary care because in primary so care in many countries these are people who are having individual yeah I'm just I, this, I'm finishing because I also have to leave now. Uh, so just just one last sentence. So 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 for for healthcare professionals in individual practices, it's important to give them more time to adapt to this, and this is something that Parliament will also fight for. 
So thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Unfortunately, I have to go. Uh, I have another event also in healthcare. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, Corinne, over to you. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, data, uh, data availability, data quality. Don't get me started. I was going to say, in the AHEAD project, we have we've we've, yeah, we've uh, come across many uh, data availability problems uh, that we've tried to overcome as best uh, as we can. This is, of course, a member state competence as well. But we do also feel that this can be uh, the. the the monitoring of data, the availability of data is something that the European Union can um, can do more on, I think. It's, it's a very complex uh, uh, matter, actually, but um, it, it's uh, more can be done. And we have been looking, of course, at health services availability and health worker availability. But in the context of this uh, specific panel discussion, maybe I should also uh, a point to the availability of data on health inequalities. And here's something actually that I would like to give as a takeaway message to our colleague from uh, from RTD, Christine, uh, that as, as a sort of a provider of, of a, a public institution uh, providing public money to consortia to um, to work on health and health outcomes, I would really uh, uh, challenge you to make sure that a couple of conditions are met at the outset of these, these programs, uh, whether they are research or, or other, that uh, they do not only measure impact in terms of the average health outcomes, so to speak, but specifically to, to have to, um, as a condition to receiving funding, to report on reduction of health inequalities. I think that would also greatly uh, contribute to having more insight into health inequalities in the union and also how they develop over time and also as a result of uh, of the uh, of the RTD programs thank you so much thank you okay well listen look i think this discussion has been very full um you know as on the panelists were saying, we didn't just stick to technology. We spoke about so many different things. And thank you so much for bringing up um, the aspect of both of you, actually, for bringing up and um, for allowing us to speak more about diversity and ethnicity and looking at social factors, because obviously that is hugely important when we talk about health inequality. So thank you to all of you. And obviously, thank you to Green and MEP Sokol. OK, well, listen, look, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, I think the tech guy is going to cut the stream any second because you've gone completely over. But thank you so much. Yep, they're saying yes in my ear. Um, so thank you all so much to the audience, everyone joining online. and also thank Thank you to Fujifilm for supporting this debate. Thank you so much. <laughs>